One of the more difficult tasks of pastoring is sitting with people who have been dealt horrible hands in life. They've lost spouses and children. Their entire world has come crashing down around them. And these moments are gut-wrenching, and there's no quote or word of wisdom to take away such pain. The chicken noodle soup for the soul books don't really work in those moments. And it's so easy when confronted with moments like that to get cynical. As you look around the world, it's easy to get cynical, isn't it? It's easy to look at our world and say, well, it's all going to come crashing down. It's all burning up. Or in our Christian circles, sometimes we express this more subtly, but we we sing songs like I'll Fly Away, which I think has a number of reasons to be rejected on theological grounds. But one of the reasons is that it blinds us, such a perspective blinds us to God's incredible grace in our world. It blinds us to the glory of the gospel, which is God reconciling all things to himself through Christ. And so we can't really say everything's just going to be burned up if God is reconciling all things to himself, can we? So we have to figure out a Christian response to all of this suffering in our world. Now, today we start our time in Ruth, and we'll take four weeks in Ruth because Ruth has four chapters. And what we find immediately upon reading Ruth in Ruth chapter 1 is that there is a tremendous amount of grief in our world. Look at all the grief in Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The days of the judges are not exactly the best days. This isn't a golden period that you would want to return to. The key line that is repeated throughout the book of Judges is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was basically the Wild West. And when we read the book, we read some absolutely horrendous stories. The final two are absolutely horrifying. And in fact, many interpreters suggest that Ruth should be read against the final two stories in Judges. Then there's this mention also in verse 1 of the famine. There was a famine in the land. And we don't really know anything about famines in our context, I suspect, though they are still a reality around the world for many people. Can you imagine being so starved that you felt grateful to pick up a half-rotten ear of corn. So that's the setting of Ruth. But notice what happens next. Because of the famine, a man takes his family away from Bethlehem. Now there's great irony here. Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. But there is no bread. So he takes his family to the country of Moab. His name is Elimelech. He has a wife named Naomi, and they have two sons, Machon and Kilion. The names are all significant. Elimelech means my God is king. And the whole book of Ruth is a reminder that that God is in control in spite of what things look like on the surface. So God is my king is a way of saying that, yes, God is in control. He is still king despite what it looks like on the surface. Naomi means pleasant, 
We'll have more to say about that in just a moment. The end of the chapter uh, makes, uh, makes a significance out of that name. But grief strikes again. So it's not just the famine or the period, but verse 3, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. Notice how the author highlights Naomi's grief by calling Elimelech the husband of Naomi. Her two sons marry two Moabite women named Orpah and Ruth. But after 10 years, grief strikes again. Verse 5, and both Mahon and Kilion died so that the woman, that is Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. This is heartbreaking, isn't it? That line, we don't even need that line, but the author wants to say, look at the grief. And so he gives us verse 5, and she was left without her two sons and her husband. Life is full of grief. Living inevitably involves grief. There are so many losses. Death is such an unwelcome guest. There are fractured relationships, people we never speak to again for a variety of reasons. Sometimes we even forget who started what. There are sudden tragedies and broken hearts and sleepless nights and aching bodies and scary thoughts. Can we all just take a breath and say, life is hard. The word Ruth 1 uses is bitter. Life is bitter. Notice what Naomi says at the end of verse 13. It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, talking to her daughters-in-law, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And these three ladies lifted their voices and wept. And two times in, the chap- in chapter 1, we read those words. They lifted their voices and wept. That's what bitter life looks like. Then there's verse 20. Ruth and Naomi returned to Bethlehem after the famine has ended. Look what she says to these people who know her. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Mara is the Hebrew word for bitter. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, because my life is bitter. What do we do with this? Do we throw our hands up in despair? Do we pull the covers over our heads and just hide from it all because life is bitter? Maybe we do do that at first. Maybe that's actually the right response. There's nothing wrong with taking some time for lament. As we've seen over our last few series in Lamentations and the Psalms of Lament, Scripture instructs us to do this. Lament is necessary, and in fact, it's healing. J.K. Rowling has this wonderful line when she speaks of a stricken lament of terrible beauty. Seems like such a paradox. But our tears are important. Our anguish is meaningful. The Psalms and the Book of Lamentations illustrate that fact. But when the tears begin to dry, we must look through tear-blurred eyes for the subtle ways of God's grace. Here we have Ruth 1 that is so full of grief, but is also so full of God's grace. We might say the same about our world. Here we have a world that is so full of grief, 
but is also so full of God's grace. It's only a matter of paying attention, keeping our eyes open, and identifying the subtle ways that God's grace appears in the most unlikely places. Notice verse 6. Yes, there's a famine, but there is also a gracious God who is in control. Verse 6 says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Why would she do that? For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Bethlehem has received bread. So we have God's sovereignty here. The Lord has visited his people. And we also have the gracious relief of returning home. Remember, she's in a foreign country, and now she gets to return to Bethlehem. There's nothing quite like grief grief in a foreign land. And so we see grace just in the simple fact that she is able to return home. And God's grace comes in unexpected ways in Ruth 1, verses 8 and 9. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. And then she blesses them. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Naomi has received some measure of comfort from her daughters-in-law. That's why she says, you've dealt kindly with me. And that's also why she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. Then there's this key moment in verse 14 after Naomi has instructed her daughters-in-law to return to their families and find a new life. Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth would not leave Naomi. And that brings us to what is really the heart of this chapter in verses 15 through 18. And Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Look how God's grace shows up for the grieving Naomi. Ruth abandons all to stay with Naomi. Ruth gives up on her dreams and binds herself to Naomi. In fact, the word... The word back in verse 9 that, or back in verse 14 that says Ruth clung to her. That word clung is the same word that we find in Genesis when, when we hear about God's plan for marriage that a man would leave his father and mother and cleave or cling to his wife. The same Hebrew word. So there's resonance here of this tight-knit relationship. She's bound herself to her mother-in-law. Now, there's one more piece of God's grace in this passage. 
Moab is mentioned seven times in this chapter. Ruth is identified as a Moabite in two of those cases in verses 4 and 22. A Moabite is a foreigner in the world of the Old Testament. They are not from Israel. They are Gentiles. They are not part of the covenant people. The Lord had made a covenant with Israel. But notice that God's amazing grace cuts across ethnic and national lines. When Ruth says, your people shall be my people and your God, my God, she's setting off a theological explosion because how can it be that a Gentile could be in the covenant with the Lord? A Moabite becomes part of the covenant people, part of God's people. And if you read through the whole book of Ruth, and we'll get there when we get to chapter 4, we'll see that not only is she part of God's covenant people, but she is part of God's redemptive plan, and she uh, she is the one who ultimately gives rise to David, who is ultimately this fulfillment of God's plan back in Genesis 3, the seed who would crush the serpent. All of this is sketching out this great story in Scripture. And God is using this person who everybody in Israel would have found so unlikely. And this is clear that she's now entered into a covenant with the Lord when she invokes the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord, in verse 17. Remember, in your Bible, when you see all caps, the underlying Hebrew there is the divine name, Yahweh, sometimes spoken of as Jehovah. Um, But we have the divine name in those instances. She's not speaking generically of a God. She is speaking of the God of Israel. And this is remarkable. This is remarkable. God does not bind himself only to a specific people or nation. He calls Israel so that he might bring all people to himself. We sit privileged because of God's gracious calling of Israel. This was his plan all along. That's why he tells Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 that I will make you a blessing to all the families of the earth. God is on a mission. It is the mission of God to reconcile the world to himself. And the book of Ruth shows us that that happens in unexpected ways. That is how God's grace works. It works in unexpected, beautiful ways. Marilyn Robinson writes, The grace of God works as it will, even gradually, patiently, quietly. In a world of grief, we must continue to look for God's subtle movements of grace. What would it look like for us to believe that God's grace is powerful and present in our world? In spite of what we see on the news, In spite of what's going on around us, in spite of what's going on in our life, what would it look like to believe that, yes, even in this unlikely circumstance, God's grace is at work? To take a line from St. Paul in his letter to the Romans, what would it look like for us to believe that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? 
It seems imperative for Christians to look for truth, goodness, beauty, wholeness, and bring it forward every chance we get. Think for a moment of the beauty of the cross. On the surface, it's full of shame and horror, the darkest of times. But when we have eyes to see, we can see that on the cross, in this messy, horrifying image, on the cross, God is drawing the world to himself. Consider your life for a moment. Can you identify God's subtle grace? Yes, we can speak about salvation and conversion and all that, and we absolutely should. But pay attention even to the small things. Maybe you see it in this moment because God is speaking from his word to you. He is comforting your heart. He is bringing healing. He is shining light on areas that need the light. Perhaps you see it when your child laughs, when they giggle. Some of you take pictures of sunsets and flowers because in those moments, you are seeing subtle signs of God's grace. As John Calvin said, the whole world is a theater of God's glory. I have experienced two particularly profound moments of God's grace in the most unlikely places. I will not name names, but I have been deeply marked, I would say eternally marked by God's grace as I have talked and prayed with two beloved people in the final moments of life. They faced death with such remarkable grace that I am forever marked by the grace of those moments. And even today, years after, I feel a swelling of emotions and peace. The indelible mark of grace from the most unlikely place. I think I'll ruin one of my favorite novels for you now, though I actually don't think this will ruin it, but Marilyn Robinson's Gilead tells the story of a dying minister who has one final interaction with his best friend's wayward son. These two men happen to share a name. The minister is John Ames, and the prodigal is John Ames Boughton, known as Jack throughout. Jack is, is the one who has always made poor decisions. And the whole novel explores how God's grace can show up in the most unlikely places. But it's a final scene in this novel that's so powerful. Following a confession from the prodigal Jack to this terminal pastor, they walk to a train station. And when they arrive, there's obvious tension. But the minister, John Ames, says, Jack, what I'd really like to do is bless you. But it might be awkward. It might be embarrassing. And Jack accepts. And so he takes off his hat. And John places his hands on Jack's head saying, Lord, bless John Ames Bowden, this beloved son and brother and husband and father. It's a beautiful moment of grace in the most unlikely place. 
later this dying minister reflects on that moment saying, I'd have gone through seminary and ordination and all the years intervening for that one moment. Think about the unlikely places in your life, the places of tension and pain and sorrow and guilt. Can you find God's grace there? You might find that God's grace shows up in the most unlikely places. And you might be able to say, when all was said and done, that it was all worth it for that one moment. May we keep our eyes open for God's grace in this world. May we not become so jaded by the suffering, pain, and fear that we miss these marvelous moments of mesmerizing grace. Keeping alert for God's grace in this world and then uncovering it. That, that, that is what we must do. We must do it for God's glory. We must do it because it's the gospel in this bitter, bitter world. God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ.